Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. This is Joe Rosenstein, and I am a professor of mathematics at Rutgers University and the author of Sidur 8 Ratzon and Machzor 8 Ratzon. Today we will be studying Tractate Nazir, Daf Bet, page 2. Chapter 1, the first chapter of this tractate, begins on this daf, and coincidentally ends on daf 8, which will be my last day on the program. Masechet Nazir, Tractate Nazir, deals with questions about a Nazir, usually translated, for lack of a better term, as Nazarite. Since the English word Nazarite conveys no additional information, we will simply use the Hebrew word Nazir. For the state of being a Nazir, usually translated as Nazarite ship, we will use the Hebrew word Nizirut. The word Nizirut is also used to mean the term of a Nazir, that is, the length of time a person is a Nazir. The description of a Nazir occurs in Badmi Bar, Numbers, Chapter 6. A Nazir is a person who vows to abstain from the fruit of the vine, to avoid all contact with the dead, and to let his or her hair grow long. Yes, the Bible states explicitly that a woman can be a Nazir. Masechet Nazir comes directly after the tractate of Nadarim, vows, because a Nazir is a person who makes a vow, neder Nazir, a vow to be a Nazir, as it says in Bamidbar, chapter 6. That is, the person becomes a Nazir by virtue of a vow, which, as we saw in the previous tractate, is a very serious commitment. This is a particularly serious vow, because in the Septuagint translation of the Bible, the vow of a Nazir is referred to as Neder Gadol, a great vow, the ultimate vow. Recall that the Septuagint translation from Hebrew to Greek was prepared in the second century before the Common Era, presumably for the large number of Jews who lived in Alexandria and other locations, perhaps commissioned by Ptolemy for the great library of Alexandria. According to legend, 70 rabbis independently translated the Bible into Greek and came up with identical translations, whence its name Septuagint, which means 70 in Latin, and Targum Hashivim, the translation of the 70 in Hebrew. One question that interests me is why the Nazir must adopt 
this particular combination of three abstentions. The Nazir does not have to abstain from society and go off and live in the wilderness like a hermit. The Nazir does not have to abstain from sex and become celibate. The Nazir does not have to abstain from alcohol, only from grape wine and, yes, grape juice. What common thread is there to the three abstentions of a Nazir? Perhaps there is no common thread. Perhaps abstaining from wine is to be considered a form of self-denial. Perhaps letting one's hair grow long is to be considered a form of public identification. Look at me, I am a Nazir. And perhaps avoiding all contact with the dead is a way of identifying with the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Many descendants of Kohanim to this day will not go into a cemetery, except to bury their parents, spouse, and siblings, in order to become in order to avoid becoming ritually impure or Tameh. However, the Nazir, like the Kohen Gadol, had to avoid contact even with the bodies of his or her parents, spouse, and siblings. Another connection between the Nazir and the Kohen Gadol is that the Kohen Gadol wears a gold plate on his forehead, called a Nezer, on which is written, Holy to Adonai. And this exact phrase, Kadosh Ladonai, is applied descriptively to a Nazir in Bamidbar. Why is a Nazir called a Nazir? We don't know. Most of the occurrences of the word Nazir in various forms in the Bible occur in chapter 6 of Bamidbar, or in reference to Samson, who is discussed later in this first chapter of Masechet Nazir. So we have little guidance to determine the meaning of Nazir by comparing its uses in different contexts. Is Nazir connected linguistically to the Nezer worn by the Kohen Gadol? Apparently both are expressions of consecration. Is Nazir just an Aramaic version of the word Neder, with a Dalit in the Hebrew word Neder, replaced with a Zion to get an Aramaic word Nazir, a replacement that occurs frequently? Both Jacob and Moses, in offering their final blessings, speak of Joseph favorably as Nazir Echav, which presumably means the chosen one of his brothers. Is a Nazir someone who is especially chosen? Are the untrimmed vines in the seventh year, the Shemitah year, called Invei Nazirecha, by association with the unshorn Nazir? Or is it the other way around, that a Nazir is similar to untrimmed vines? We probably can't give definitive answers to any of these questions. The English terms usually associated with a Nazir do not really apply. A Nazir is not really an ascetic. The only pleasure denied to a Nazir is that of wine. A Nazir is not really a hermit. The Nazir can have a family and participate fully in society. A Nazir is not necessarily a spiritual person. There is no indication that the Nazir engages in prayer, contemplation, mysticism, or self-improvement, and the only biblical figure that is identified as a Nazir 
Samson is hardly recognizable as a spiritual person. Though not necessarily an ascetic, a hermit, or a spiritual person, the Nazir is recognizably different from others in his community. In addition to asking what a Nazir is, we can ask the following questions. What function does a Nazir fill in society? Why does a person choose to be a Nazir? Does the society approve or disapprove of the practice? Is becoming a Nazir a private commitment to God? The text in Numbers refers to this person as Yazir Ladonai, a Nazir to God. Or is it a matter of public interest? These questions are difficult to answer because they are rarely discussed explicitly and because the institution of Nazirut essentially disappeared from Judaism once the temple was destroyed. Because release from the Nazir vow and the rituals to complete one's Nazirut could only be performed at the temple. So the person who compiled the Mishnah in about the year 200, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, and the writers of the Talmud in the subsequent three or four centuries had never seen a Nazir. But we will try to glean some response to these questions as we proceed through the coming pages of Masechet Nazir. The first Mishnah of Masechet Nazir deals with the question of how does one become a Nazir? Now normally you would expect that a person who wishes to be a Nazir would make a statement like, I vow to be a Nazir. And that may be what normally happened. But the very first Mishnah deals with the unusual cases, where the person can't bring himself or herself to make that vow explicitly, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of awe. The concept of becoming a Nazir, and even the word Nazir itself, might have been scary. So the rabbis provided kinuyim, euphemisms, that a person might use, like pazir instead of nazir. Thus, if you announce, I vow to be a pazir, then you became a nazir. The rabbis also describe partial statements, referred to as yadayim, handles, abbreviations that would also be implemented abbreviations that would also be interpreted as Nazir vows. For example, if you said, I will do that, while a Nazir was walking by, your statement would be accepted as a Nazir vow. You had to be careful what you said in those days, or you might find yourself committed to becoming a Nazir, even though you were just thinking out loud about the role of the Nazir. In the context where vows were taken very, very seriously, where the words you said trumped the thoughts in your mind, you didn't want to suggest that you admired a Nazir unless you really wanted to become one. In which case you could express your admiration by saying explicitly that you admire this person but didn't want to emulate him or her. The Mishnah provides several other abbreviations which we will consider when the Gemara gets to them. It should be noted that there is an extensive discussion of abbreviations that arise in making vows in the opening chapter of the previous tractate, Nadarim, whose focus, of course, is on vows. Before addressing the substance of the topic, the Gemara on Adaf discusses briefly three textual concerns. First, the opening paragraph of the Gemara provides some insight into how Rebbe 
Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, structured the Mishnah. Since he was the leading teacher of his generation, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is often referred to simply as Rabbi. The opening paragraph asks the logical question of why the Tractate of Nazir is in the volume of the Mishnah that deals with Nashim, women. Recall that the, that the Mishnah has six sections, which we are familiar with from the phrase Shisha Sidre Mishnah, Six are the parts of the Mishnah in the Pesach Haggadah. The six sections are named Zeraim, that is seeds, which deals with agriculture. Moed, times, which deals with festivals. Nashim, women, which deals with family issues. Nizikin, damages, which deals with civil law. Kodashim, holy things, which deals with the sacrificial system, and taharot, purity, which deals with impurity. In which of those categories does Masechet Nazir belong? In fact, in which of those categories does the tractate Nadarim belong? There is no obvious answer. But an important feature of vows is that a husband can annul a vow made by his wife under certain circumstances, and a father can annul a vow made by his daughter under certain circumstances. So a natural category for both tractates, Nadarim and Nazir, is Nashim. The Gemara, however, doesn't give this answer. It gives instead the following answer. Not here, but in the next tra tractate of Sota, which says that since tractate Tubot, whose focus is on marriage, ends with an issue concerning vows, it is followed by the tractate that deals with vows, that is, Nadarim. And since a person making an az becomes an Azir by making a vow, it makes sense to follow tractate Nadarim with tractate Nazir. Thus, the two tractates of Nadarim and Nazir are interjected between tractate Ketubot and tractate Sota. Now, the compilers of the Talmud felt that it was necessary to also provide a logical link between the tractates of Nazir and Sota the tractate that deals with a woman who is suspected of adultery by her suspicious husband. This woman is referred to as a sota and has to undergo a degrading trial by ordeal at the temple, which is described in detail in chapter 5 of Numbers. At the beginning of tractate sota, they provide the following explanation ascribed to Rebbe, anyone who sees a sota in her degradation will take the vow of a nazir and forego drinking wine. Huh? What's the connection? Back to our page, Nazir Daf 2. The compilers of the Gemara asked that question and answered it by saying that, well, wine was the cause of the Sota's infidelity. If you think that's a stretch, then I certainly agree with you. Sometimes the anonymous compilers of the Talmud come to far-fetched conclusions. But we do learn from this passage that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rebbe, thought of a Nazir primarily as one who abstains from wine, and sees wine as a problematic substance, which can sometimes best be overcome by taking the vow of a Nazir. It's as if he thought of Nazirut as a rehab program for alcoholics. In its second introductory comment, the Gemara notes that the text that they have of the Mishnah is incorrect. 
Indeed, it appears that someone whose role it was to recite the Mishnah by heart omitted the phrase between two connection, two occurrences of the same word. And that error was perpetuated in some subsequent generations. The rabbis in the Gemara have no hesitation about saying that the text they have is incorrect. And they have no hesitation in providing a corrected version of the text. So 1,500 years ago, our sages realized that texts were not perfect and that errors crept into sacred writings. Given that fact, why should anyone be surprised or have objections when someone today claims that the sacred writings have errors? What change did they actually make to the Mishnah? The Mishnah reads, all the abbreviations for the vow of a Nazir are equivalent to the vow of the Nazir, and then gives two lists, first a list of euphemisms, and then a list of abbreviations. Having a list of euphemisms doesn't make much sense, since the Mishnah has not even mentioned euphemisms. The Mishnah, as edited, reads, all the abbreviations for the vow of the Nazir are equivalent to the vow of the Nazir. Now here's what they added. And all the euphemisms for the vow of the Nazir are equivalent to the vow of the Nazir. The following are euphemisms. So now it makes sense to have a list of euphemisms and then a list of abbreviations. In the third introductory comment, the Gemara has an extended discussion of style. The Gemara asks the question, if you announce that you are going to provide and discuss two lists, list A and list B, shouldn't you first give examples of list A and afterwards give examples of list B? Here we are told that we will discuss abbreviations, that's list A, and euphemisms, that's list B, but instead of starting with a list of abbreviations, the Mishnah starts with a list of euphemisms. And then the Gemara gives several examples dealing with other topics where list A is given first. And then it gives several examples where list B is given first, and concludes that the truth is that the author of the Mishnah sometimes has used one method, and sometimes the other. They then try to figure out which method is used when, but gratefully don't persist in trying to answer that question. The Gemara then begins its discussion of the Mishnah itself, focusing on several of the phrases that might be considered abbreviated versions of the vow of the Nazir. It doesn't discuss the euphemisms, euphemisms mentioned in the Mishnah, since what can you say about replacing Nazir with Pazir, an arrangement of letters that has no meaning, but just sounds like Nazir. One of the abbreviations discussed is the phrase, I will be attractive. Samuel, a rabbi in Babylonia from the generation after the completion of the Mishnah, explained that the Mishnah meant that's meant that statement to abbreviate the vow of a Nazir only if the person saying it was holding on to his or her hair. As noted earlier, you had to be careful of what you said, or you might accidentally become a Nazir without actually intending that outcome. One might have thought that growing one's hair long led to the bedraggled look of a hermit, an outsider, an outcast from society. This phrase suggests exactly the opposite, that the Nazir had an attractive appearance that made him or her look distinctive, and that served, so to speak, as a recruitment vehicle that would lead others to become Nazirim. 
Today's daf closes with a question. How can a Nazir be considered attractive? For isn't a Nazir a sinner? Since the daf ends there, we will also end there and resume next time with a question. Why would someone consider a Nazir to be a sinner? I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.